As you know, and as I've said earlier, we're in the midst of our Faith in Action sermon series. And the goal of this series is to examine how faith or our belief systems impact our life or our actions or who we are and what we do. We've been saying week after week that one's faith or one's belief systems ought to drastically affect how you live life, how you deal and relate to the world around you. In other words, what you believe in is often lived out in almost uncontrollable ways. In other words, you can tell me what you believe. You can write out a 100-page manifesto on what you believe. But typically what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick back and I'm just going to watch how you live. I'm going to watch how you interact with people. I'm going to watch how generous you are with your resources. I'm going to watch how you interact with your neighbors and how you treat other people and how you live your life. Because then and only then will I be able to tell, tell exactly what you believe in, right? Exactly what you have faith in. We believe that faith produces action. Faith without works, as David highlighted yes, uh, last week, the scripture, faith without works is dead or faith without works is meaningless. And I love the example that he gave about faith and works. He says that works is not our faith. That's not the main thing. Works is just kind of like when you put your, you know, put those um, things on your heart and they monitor your heart and you see the thing going up and down. He likened that to the works of our faith. You know, we can't see faith, but we can see your actions and our works or our actions are the indications of what we believe in. It's the indication of our faith. That's why the scripture says that faith without actions, faith without works, faith without sort of moving in motion is absolutely meaningless and it's absolutely dead. What's at the very core of you will be lived out in very meaningful ways and that especially comes as a result of being a person of faith. We've used as a springboard or basis of our series Romans chapter 12 verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. He continues, don't copy the behavior and customs or the actions of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by what? Changing the way you think. Paul says, listen, let God do a work on your insides, on your CPU, as I often say, on your guts, and let him change you from the inside out. And as God does that from the inside out, your actions and your, 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 your emotions and your activity will change and become more like God. Jesus wants to make us a new person and give us new actions as we put our faith in action. And over the course of this series, we talked about life in the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit change us from the inside out. We've talked about what it means to be committed. David did a fantastic job last week of talking about us as a community in action. I almost wish he had made it a two-part series because I know that he um, meant to share some things that he didn't get to. But today I want to simply call this talk, Called to Serve. Called to Serve. Real simple talk this morning. Called to Serve. The more I study Jesus, the more I study the scriptures, the more I study what's expected of us as believers, the more I see that service, serving others, being a servant at heart, is uh, almost irremovably tied to what it means to be a person of faith. When you look at the scriptures, when you look at our heroes of the faith, when you especially look at the life of Jesus, we cannot separate service from that. We cannot separate being a servant from that. And today I just want to look at Jesus, our eternal example, and how he models that for his disciples and therefore models it for us. We're going to be looking at John chapter 13 this morning. 
John chapter 13. We're going to be starting at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the edges of your rows. We'll also be projecting the scriptures on the screens in front of you. Let me pray this morning. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much how you empower us with your word. You empower us with your truth. I thank you, O Lord, that we get to come here and worship you and learn of you and be changed and transformed. Lord, we just pause this morning and ask that you would uh, bless uh, those um, people on the East Coast who have been uh, affected by the storm. Lord, we know people personally who've been affected by those storms, our friends and family, our vineyard friends and family on the East Coast, Lord. Not only have they been infected, Lord, but they are responsible to be your church and to help rebuild, Lord. So I pray that you would bless them with uh, provision and resources and help them be your hands and feet uh, in, this, uh, in the communities in which they live. Lord, we know it's also election season, and we want to be led and guided by you as we cast our votes, Lord. And we just ask for your wisdom. We uh, ask for clarity of sight so that we can make the right selection. Lord, would you visit with us this morning? Would you put power on these words that, you would get, that you've given me to speak, Lord? Would you teach us how to be servants? Would you teach us how to do it the way you did it? Would you move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light can shine through? Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're looking at John chapter 13. We're starting at verse 1. Verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew, um, excuse me, he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is why, what I am. Now that your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do now. So here we see Jesus together with his 12 disciples and a very, you know, he's very in touch with the reality of his situation. And Jesus is nearing the time where he's going to be killed. He's going to be martyred, where the scriptures will be fulfilled and Jesus's life will uh, be taken. He's nearing the point where Judas is going to betray him. And all of these negative sort of circumstances are going to happen to Jesus. Jesus is very in touch with this. And as his time is drawing near, Jesus finds the need to speak to his disciples and to demonstrate something, to teach them a very powerful lesson as the end of his life draws near. And I ask you this morning to use your mind's eye to sort of set the stage as we sort of walk through this story. 
Imagine Jesus and his disciples around a table. They're reclining at this table. They're having this meal. And as, you know, as the meal is going on, this isn't after the meal, but as the meal is going up, Jesus gets up from the table and he proceeds to wash his disciples' feet. He begins by removing his outer garment. Now, if you've ever seen pictures or cartoons of Jesus, you know that he's wearing these sort of layered garments. The undergarment is usually white with some colored thing over the top. And what Jesus does is he takes off that outer garment. And in doing so, he would appear before his disciples as a servant would. You know, the servants were dressed very humbly. And they didn't have on the outer garment. So when Jesus took off this outer garment, he appeared before his disciples as a servant. And not only did he take off his outer garment, but he wraps a towel around his waist so he can get down to the business of, of washing feet. Now, the towel would represent what, you know, um, an apron. So somebody in the service industry would don an apron because they're ready to serve and they're using that apron um, to not get dirty or to dry things off. So he puts this towel around his waist. He pours water into a basin and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now, again, we can't think about modern-day feet that uh, are tucked neatly in socks and shoes and walking on paved roads and perhaps driving, spending most of their traveling moments in a car or a bus or some automotive in, uh, automobile. Think about Jesus' day where the mode of travel was likely on foot, on unpaved dirt roads, and the shoe of choice is not a nice covered shoe like this, but rather it's a sandal with open, open toes and open feet. So Jesus isn't nicely giving this nice wash, you know, to feet that made you smell bad a little bit. Imagine feet that have traveled miles and miles on a dirt road. Smelly feet. This is what Jesus is doing. He's dealing with very, you know, nasty feet here. Okay. So we sit this scene, and Jesus has presented himself as a servant. He's put up this towel around his waist, and he's washing 24 of the filthiest feet that you can possibly begin to imagine. And as we set this scene, we need not forget who Jesus is. This is the Word in the flesh. This is the Son of God, the King of kings, right? Jesus knows this. His disciples knows this. This is the Master washing the feet of the servant. This is the teacher or the rabbi washing the feet of the student or the pupil. This is royalty washing the feet of peasants. But as impressive as that is, even as we read it today, it's super impressive in this day. Because you knew your place in Jesus' day. You knew whether you were a servant or a slave. And there was this very distinct hierarchy of who did what and who didn't do what. Okay? So this is very impressive. This is very significant. It's almost like an offensive thing for the teacher to be watching the feet of the student, for the rabbi to be washing the feet of those that are below them. So this passage should not be skipped over. This passage shouldn't be taken lightly. Instead, this passage should be used to illustrate a very important principle that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and therefore is trying to teach us all who read and take in the scriptures is that servanthood is where it's at. To be a servant is where it's at. There's a necessity to being a servant. And I want to just give a couple reasons why Jesus does what he does, and I hope that it will make sense to you, and I hope you can integrate this into your understanding of what it means to not only be a person of faith, but a person that puts that faith into action. 
The first reason that Jesus did this, he did this as a voluntary act of humility. He showed voluntary humility. Verse 3 reads, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took, out, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. So the scripture makes it clear for us that Jesus knew exactly who he was. It wasn't like as Jesus was dying on the cross, the father suddenly opened his mind and said, listen, you're the Messiah. You're it. You made it. Right? All along, Jesus knew exactly who he was, knowing fully the power he had, knowing fully where he had come from and where he was headed, the glory to which he was headed. Jesus, knowing all this, still took the low position of a servant, took the low position of a slave, and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, what I call that is upside down. It's upside down. It's countercultural. It's not the way we think, right? We think the important people should be served. The leaders in the church, man, somebody ought to get them some water, man. Somebody got to carry their bags. Somebody got to do the stuff for them. Somebody needs to make their life easier. This is what we've been conditioned to think, especially if we've been hanging around certain churches our whole life. But this is upside down. The master is serving. The rabbi is serving. The the honorable one is serving. God in the flesh, the son of God is serving. This is upside down. Why? Because in our society, we see the important people. They're they're rushed along to private rooms as cameras take their picture. They get the best seats in the house. They get to eat first. They get to partake of the finest foods. The ordinary, common, common folks are just sort of hustled away from them as to not disturb the people who are so important. And if these people should become, these very important people should become embarrassed or humiliated, they're certainly not doing it to themselves. It's certainly an accident. But we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ willfully, purposefully humbling himself. Why? For the sake of others. For the sake of others. He's making a willful choice to do this for others. And I think that word willful is very important there. You don't get any points because you're a waiter, you know. If you're a waiter and that's what you get paid to do, don't take any credit for, you know, being humble and being a servant. You know, that's what you get paid to do. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in every aspect, every part of your life, taking full in the great commandment, which is to love God and to love your neighbor. If we boil those two, two things down, what God is saying to us is that others ought to be considered more important than yourself. Other people. And for some of us, that's extremely difficult to do. Every now and then I reflect on my father. And those of you who are regulars here, you know that my father passed away a couple of years ago. And I mean, I, I regularly mention him in, in my sermons. But I was just thinking about him uh, this past couple of weeks. And one of the things that I've, I've always found that was a very remarkable about him was he's just always a very humble guy. He had plenty of reason to not be humble. He's very well-liked. He had made quite a name for himself in, in, in the streets and then among his colleagues. But he always, he always was very humble. And one of the ways this humility always played out is that he always, as I put it, he always was trying to get under people. In other words, no matter who the lowest person was in the room, for whatever reason, whether they were poor or whether they had a bad reputation, my father would always find a unique way to get under that person. And he'd do that by either making himself 
uh, the butt of the joke or just kind of disarm that person and say, listen, if you think what you did was bad, and you tell them a story about how he messed up. And, and, and in these very unique and very significant ways, he always found a way to get under the lowest person in the room. And I just, I just found that that's a very remarkable, very remarkable character trait. It's something that I try to model in my everyday life. I'm always trying to get under people. I'm always trying to, I don't always succeed at this. But what is that an indication of? It's an indication that you value others more than yourself. It's an indication that other people take priority over yourself. And it's a mark of a person of faith. It's one of the ways we put our faith in action. It's what Jesus is doing in this very circumstance. Being the significant person in the room. Being the teacher. Being the master. He gets under the lowest person in the room. Literally. He's on his knees. He's washing their feet. He's managed to get under the lowest person in the room. Now, why was Jesus able to do this with such ease? And this is just so, isn't some isolated instance where Jesus is doing this surprising act of humility and people are taken aback by this because Jesus isn't normally humble. Every place Jesus went, he walked with humility. Every place he went, he spoke to people with respect. And even though he was arguing with the Pharisees and all these people all the time, he still did so in a humble way. He still did so with respect. Why was that? I think that Jesus was able to do that because he was very uh, in touch with who he was. He was very in touch with who he was. Frankly, I like to be around people who are in touch with who they are, who like who they are, who are confident in themselves. Why? Because they're not trying to impress me the whole time. They're not trying to be something that they're not, Okay. It's, you ever try to be around somebody who's trying to impress you or trying to, you know, be something that they're not? It's, it's fatiguing. It's like, it's annoying, right? You just want to find a door and you want to leave. But Jesus is comfortable in his skin. He knows who he serves. He knows who he works for. He knows what his mission is. And therefore, he doesn't have to impress anybody. And because he doesn't have to impress anybody, he can do and be who God told him to be without fear of what somebody else thinks. Without fear of somebody thinking him a chump, or without fear of somebody saying, isn't this the Messiah with a towel around his waist, bowed low to wash these guys' feet? Isn't this the Messiah? Is this guy the real deal or what? Jesus didn't have to worry about that. He knew who he was. He knew why he came. And my question to you is, who would you be if you truly knew who you were? If you truly understood who you worked for, whose opinion mattered, who might you be? What might you have the freedom to do? If you didn't care what anybody thought, let me, let me just, let me rephrase that. I think it's natural, I think it's helpful to care what people think. We call that self-awareness, okay? I think it's helpful, Right? And I hear people say all the time, I don't care what anybody thinks. Oh, did you brush your teeth today? You care, okay? Did you comb your hair? Did you, you know, did you pick out a nice coordinated outfit? Then you care. Now, I've met a few people who really don't care. But generally speaking, people that say that, they care. I think a helpful measure that is, is good. But I think where we get into trouble is when we care too much what people think. Because the world around us doesn't have, they don't have our same values. They don't use the Holy Scriptures as the manual for life. So imagine us spending all of this time trying to impress people who don't have the values that we have. Trying to seek approval for people whose rule book is written by somebody completely different. 
this is why it's so hard to, to love the world and, and try to be a Christian. I often say the only thing harder than being a Christian is trying to be a halfway one. Because you got, you try to figure out who am I going to be at church and who I'm going to, and what if those worlds ever collide? Who am I going to be if two of these people are in the same room from different worlds? It's so, it's so difficult to try to figure out who to be. Who am I going to impress? My church friends or my, you know, my work people. But Jesus models for, and I just, I covet this. To be comfortable in my own skin. To be confident in who God has called me to be. To know with blessed assurance that the way that I chose to live is the way that God wants me to live. I, I desperately want that. And I think for the most part, I do walk in that. I can do a better job, I'm sure. But I ask you the question, who would you be? How would you live? How would you give? How would you serve if you really knew who you were? If it really mattered to you that Christ was pleased with your life, who would you be? Who would you be? What would you be? Jesus was comfortable in his own skin, and therefore, he lived this out every single day without an ounce of fear or hesitation of hesitation of what others might think or what say. And that's radically upside down. It was upside down then, and it's upside down now. Jesus took the place of a servant. He washes their feet as a willful act of humility because when you're living upside down, you realize that the way up is down. And I've said that a number of times before. In God's kingdom, we say it's upside down. Really, it's right side up. Everybody else is upside down, but you get what I'm saying. But when you're living upside down, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, we know that the way up is down. If you, if you, if you turn yourself around in your mind's eye, if you reach up, you're essentially reaching down. All right? In other words, if you want to get anywhere in God's kingdom, the way is down. The way is to be a servant. The way is to be a slave. It's humility. And Jesus understands this. And not only does he understand this, but he models this. And not only does he model this, he teaches about it. He says in Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. It will be different. He didn't say, hey, I'd like you guys to maybe try a different approach, see how you like it. Or maybe try this out and see, give me some feedback on it. He says, no, among you, it will be different. It must be different. He continues, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as ransom for many. Jesus says, you want to be something special in the kingdom? You want to do great things for me? Listen, the way up is down. The way forward is backwards. We live it, we, we're upside down. And Jesus says, listen, the people around us, listen, important people, don't, don't copy the behaviors of those guys. Don't get too attached to that system. If you want to be something in the kingdom, listen, you got to get low. You got to serve. You got to consider others as more important than yourself. I think this is such an important message, especially for church people. Because those of us who've been around church for any period of time, we know that generally speaking, the more you, the higher up you go in any church organization, typically the less work you do, or the softer your seat becomes, or the closer your parking space becomes. And listen, I don't want anything to do with that, because that's not what I see in here. 
I'm not knocking the other churches or any church cult. I guess I can't even, but um, I don't see that in the scriptures. Okay? The way I see it, the deeper you get into this thing, the more responsibilities you have. The more keys you get. The more people that are let down if you don't show up. The deeper you get into this thing. The more important you become in the kingdom of God. The more work you have to do. You got to get there earlier. You got to leave later. This is a picture that we see in the scriptures. This is a picture that we try to set before people. Can tell you how many people have come in and out of these doors trying to show me their resume, so to speak. Well, I used to preach at my other church and I led small groups and, you know, I did this and that. That's fine, man. That's fine. We, we can use somebody to sweep the floors. Can you, can you do that? Hey, we, we got a basketball outreach on Wednesday. We need somebody to come and help get set up for that. And almost always there's this recoil. So you didn't look at my resume. I preached over at the other church. I led a small group over there. I had a, I had a comfortable chair up front. I had a parking space over there. Um, give me something important to do. Those people usually just sort of fade to the back and they sort of fade out the door. But the people who are really, really interested in doing kingdom stuff, they'll say, where's the hole? I'll fill it. Where are the places where people are overwhelmed and burn out? Where, what's the hole? I got this thing, I got this list of stuff that I'd like to do, but what needs to be done? Where can I serve? Where can I meet a need? Where can I fill a hole? Where, where can I relieve some pressure from someplace else? Jesus says, among you, it will be different. Anybody wants to be important, they must take the place of a slave. Jesus willfully modeled this by willfully showing humility, getting under the people around him, under the people that he leaves, and giving us an example of how to follow. Which leads me to my next reason why Jesus does this. He does this to give us an eternal example. An eternal example, a lasting example of who to be, what to do, and how to live. Verse 12 says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, should, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Those two very important words is tacked onto that last verse. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. I'm sorry, four words, if you do them. And some of us would look around the room of our life and say, listen, my life is void of significant, consistent blessing. There's a lack of functionality to my life. Things aren't quite working. And typically, as I'm advising people, I say, well, why are you serving? Who have you gotten under lately? Whose life have you made easier? Where are you spotting needs and making life easier and softer and more pleasant? Where are you serving others? Because this takes the form of a promise. Jesus says, now that you know these things, he says, you know better. You've seen this demonstrated by your teacher. You will be blessed. Why? Just because you know it? Absolutely not. That you do it. That you put your faith into action. That you walk this out in your life. You will be blessed if you do them. And this is what Jesus is saying. 
You call me Lord. You call me Savior. You call me Rabbi. You know that I'm the real deal. And if I, the King of Kings, the Word made flesh, can take off my outer garments, take the position of a servant, get down on my knees, pour water into a basin, handle your mangy feet as a servant would, don't you dare think twice about washing the feet of others. If God in the flesh can do this, don't you dare think yourself better than anyone else. Don't you dare shy away from the lowly task. Don't you dare have certain things beneath you, certain people beneath you, certain roles and responsibilities beneath you. If I, the king of kings, can do the dirty job and to do the dirty work, Take that as an eternal example and get to work. Take that as an eternal example with a punctuation mark behind it and get to work in the world around you with the people around you. An eternal example. And I will say with confidence of my own life and the lives of the people that I uh, pastor and the lives of the people that I observe, the people that get this tend to have the best lives. I'm not talking about they have the biggest houses and they have the most toys. I'm not talking about that. I feel the need to clarify that often. The people that get this seem to have peace and functionality to their life that is almost unexplainable by natural means. They have provision in their life. They seem to be at peace with God and others because they understand this principle is eternal. It's eternal. And frankly, it even works for the non-believer. I think God's laws of generosity and God's laws of service produce blessing whether you're a Christian or not. I've seen it. I've seen it in the world around me. This doesn't speak of what God expects for a person in their sin and to get right with him. I've just found that these principles are generally true both in and outside of the faith, especially on the inside of the faith because Jesus says, now that you know. In other words, you've been told, you've been warned, you've been shown, this has been demonstrated to you. I expect you to get to work serving and being humble. Now, I want to spend a good chunk of time today talking about how we can walk this out in our life. How do we walk this stuff out every day? Because we can talk about service in theory. We can talk about being others-minded in theory. We can talk about getting under people as a matter of speaking or as a figure of speech. But we need to put some legs on this. How can we do this stuff in our everyday life? with the people who live in our world. And I think that one of the main ways we can do this, the most practical ways, is I think it starts at home. I think it starts at home. I think it starts at home. I think the people that ought to benefit from your faith, the people ought to benefit from your life as a servant, the most should be the people that you share your house with. People that live with you. Again, I've been in church my whole life. And I've seen all these people. I've seen countless people. They would spend hours at the church. They would do everything that needed to be done. They would be changing tires. They see somebody stopped on the side of the road. They do, I mean, do all these sorts of things. And the people in their house, they were just as mean as they could be at home. They were just as unavailable and they did not contribute at all at home, and their family didn't like him very much, but Joe, I mean, he was, everybody else liked him. What was happening? 
Joe didn't apply these principles within the four walls of his own home. He didn't get up under his wife. He didn't get under his children. He didn't figure out a way to serve them every single day. He didn't figure out that that was his job. He he, he, he equated this stuff with this kingdom life that he's supposed to be living, the stuff he's supposed to be doing with the church, and therefore his family didn't have access to this good stuff. And I'm telling you, it shouldn't be that way. Because we have a ministry to our families first. God, family, church, world around you. Okay? So don't go skipping over your home. Those of you who are married, you are called to serve your spouse. I'll say it again. Those of you who are married, you're called to serve your spouse. And I've been with my wife for almost 10 years now. I know exactly. I know exactly what it means to serve her. Now, many of those ways don't come natural for me, even after 10 years. And uh, what, I, what I tried to do the first half of our marriage, well, the first three-fourths or more of our marriage, is to love my wife according to the ways that came natural to me um, and according to the ways that I thought, but this would really be nice. So I like to, I mean, I, I like gifts, so I like to buy my wife gifts. My wife is very frugal. Besides, it's, it's our money that I'm buying a gift with, so, which really makes the gift really not that awesome for her because she's very frugal. She's very money conscious. So I would buy these gifts. I would try to serve her in this way. She's like, I don't want that. I want you to clean up. I want you to put that bookshelf together. You know, I want you to do this. I want you to, you know, give the boys a bath. And I'm like, listen, I bought you this thing. This, everybody wants one of these. She's like, I'm, and it's, it's slowly sinking in here. But she doesn't want to be, that doesn't serve, I don't serve her in that way. And I just say, honey, why don't you give me your list and, and you tell me how to serve you. And the same thing is going on with her. She's trying to figure out, you know, it's hard for a frugal person to buy gifts for somebody, you know? It's hard for them to receive gifts. It's even harder for them to buy them. But we're understanding that we serve each other in that way. And the list can go on and on and on and on. And my, I got two boys, four and a half and one and a half. Listen, I know how to serve them. They have a very specific love language. And they let me know it. And my job is to be available. Listen, I can be the best pastor in the world. I can give you advice that will change your life. I can sit with you by candlelight and just expound on the scriptures and just open your eyes to all that God has to say for you. I can come and I can preach wonderfully. But if, if I'm failing at home, you ought to find someplace else to worship. You ought to find somebody else to follow. My children don't respect me. And if my wife doesn't find that I serve her and I'm working hard at getting under them at my own house, then my recommendation to you is that all of this stuff that I do here is, is somewhat meaningless. Because I've missed the point. I've missed the point. And I'll say the same thing to you. Whatever you do outside of your house, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're failing at home. If, you're fa- if your spouse and your family. And some of you, um, you know, you're, 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 you live with your parents or, you know, you have another arrangement. If the people in your house don't benefit from what you have to offer them, then you need to go back to the drawing board. I can spend a lot more time on that, but I won't. Another place we can put this into action is at work. You know, I've worked places where I thought, you know what, I owe my boss some money because I didn't earn this paycheck that I got this week. I should have went into him and said, listen, man, I really appreciate this. 
but I need to give you a cut of this back because, you know, I didn't do much, you know, today. I didn't do much this week. And some of us, man, listen, we're making God look real bad when we go from Monday to Friday, from about 8 to 5. You're inviting people to church and picnics and pig roasts and to worship nights, and they're like, I'm not going to your church. This is what, this is, this is what Christians do? They update their Facebook and their Twitter pages all day? They use a company, copy machine and the company's resources? They're poor workers. They don't have work ethic. That's what you're inviting me to? That's what you want me to become? No, thank you. Listen, I think Christians ought to be the best at whatever they do. I think because of you being a Christian at your work that your boss should look for Christian applicants because they work harder. Because they show up on time and they leave late if necessary. I think Christians ought to give their employers an honest day's work and earn an honest wage. I think Christians ought to not be doing a whole lot of personal things on their work time unless, of course, that's a culture of your, the acceptable culture of your workplace. I think we ought to be serving and we ought to do our job like Jesus would do it if he happened to get hired at your workplace. And some of you would examine your work life or the example that you set or the model that you set at your workplace and you go, man, I, need, I, I, need, I got some work to do. I got some changes to make. We want to bring this down to a lower shelf. We want to despiritualize service. The nuts and bolts of it happen, as David says last week, and you're going to work. And you're doing life. Our faith is put into action as we live life among the people that are around us. God wants us to be the best employees that we can be. And if you're a boss, God wants you to be the best boss you can be. I'll move on for the sake of time. Be a servant at your local church. Now, I could spend a whole lot of time on this, but we did talk about this quite a bit several weeks ago. But I will never stop talking about this because the thing that makes this place run, the things that makes it efficient and effective to do the work of the ministry, to reach this community like God has called us to reach it, is that every single person takes a little piece of ownership and says, you know what, I'm going to do my part. Nobody thinks more important of themselves than they ought to. Nobody thinks lowly of themselves more, more than they should. Everybody says, God has given me something to do and I want to do it. Now, like I said earlier, what most people do is say, what is cool and exciting? Listen, what are my spiritual gifts? What do I like to do? Let me do, let me do that. What do I like to do? Well, you might find that what you like to do, we don't really need you to do that at this time. We'll put you on the waiting list. But I desperately want people to come in the door and say, you know what? What needs to be done? Where's there a hole that needs to be filled? My church... If there's people serving. If somebody comes and set these chairs up. There's somebody comes and sweep the floor. There's somebody comes and make coffee. There's somebody comes and watch the children in the children's ministry. There's somebody that comes and blows the leaves out in front of the door. Somebody comes and do these sort of things. Let me see if they need some help with that. Let me see if they need some help with that. And I'll tell you what, listen, if every single person just did a little bit, consistently and faithfully, man, it's, listen, the sky's the limit to what we can do. The sky is too limited to work. If everybody had an eye open for things that were left undone or places where their need to be, needs were unmet, listen, we would be, this, this would be phenomenal. If every person that came to this church says, you know what, the church, they're going to restoration on Saturday, I'm going to be there if I can help it. I'm going to rearrange my schedule 
to do what needs to be done so that I can serve people. They go into the nursing home, let me get on the schedule to do that. Let me help do my part as a church to get the work done in this community, to bless this community in the name of Jesus. This is what everybody needs to do as a community. Serve your local church with your time, your talent, and treasure. What if everybody just gave what they were supposed to give? What if that burden wasn't just placed on a few people to just give and to pay the bills and to pay staff salaries? What, what if everybody just did their part? I tell you, it would be a fantastic place here. People will be drawn to that. People will be moved closer to that. Be a servant at your local church. And generally speaking, be a servant in the world around you. We've talked about these specific places, but there's all sorts of places where you can be a servant to the people around you. You're passing people with flat tires or with hoods up and smoke coming out. You know your neighbor is elderly and she can't do certain things. Or you know that the person across the street, that their husband passed away, they might need some meals, they might need some encouragement. You see the leaves piling up in your neighbor's yard. You see all sorts of things around you. You know the person in the cubicle next to you is falling behind on their workload. You're finished with those. There's all sorts of things that we can do in the world around us. All sorts of things. And even as I speak right now, some of you are thinking about opportunities that you've let pass, people that you've left hanging. And that's not to be, bring condemnation or to shame. It's just to bring an awareness that, listen, all around you, every single day, multiple times a day in the world around us, God is giving us opportunities to be just do-gooders? Absolutely not. But to show God's love and kindness in practical ways to the people around us, not because, you know, we're just some goody-two-shoes, but because this is the model, this is the example that our Lord and Savior gave us to do. We know better, so we have to do better. So where are the places in your world around you where you can do this, where you can be this? Where are they? Who are those people that you can get under and make a difference in their life? for the sake of the kingdom, in the world around you. Say, Pastor, what's the big picture? I want to wrap this up by uh, sharing with you something that sort of hit me this week. I think that what Jesus wants to do in our whole life, uh, but especially in this aspect as it relates to serving and being a servant and getting under people, is I think that Jesus wants to close the gap. Jesus wants to close the gap. And naturally, you think when I say something like that, close the gap between what and what? Close the gap between what and what? And if you ask yourself that question, that's a very good question. I want you to listen carefully, okay? I think that Jesus wants to close the gap between the high you and the low you. The high you and the low you. Let me explain. The high you is who you are when things are going well in your life. The high you is you right after payday, Right? The high you is you when you've just gotten a promotion at work or the sun is shining, right, or your cupboards are full. There's freely, freely flowing good relations between you and your spouse when the world around you is good. Listen, that's the high you. And many of us, when we're, when we're in that place, listen, it's just easy to be a servant. You're skipping through life. You're, you know, picking flowers and smelling them, you know, you're saying hi to people. You have an awareness of the world around you. Eager to serve. You're eager to share. This is the high you. Things are going well. Life is good, right? Well, I don't think you get a whole lot of credit for what you do at that point. I don't really think that God is real pleased and he, he doesn't stand up on you know, his tiptoes to observe who you are at those high moments. 
the high you really doesn't get a whole lot of credit, mainly because that's not the real you. The real you is, is the low you. The low you is when, you know, things aren't quite happening right. The day furthest from payday, okay? A day when things aren't quite going well. You aren't feeling particularly generous. You aren't feeling particularly giving. People have been talking about you and talking bad about you. Your folks have made you angry. Your boss has made you angry. Your children aren't listening. There's Oreos all over the couch on your brand new couch. The list can go on and on and on. That's the low you. And guess what? Who you are at that point is who you are. The low you is who you are. We, I, give myself too much credit for how I live, how I love, how I preach, how I pastor, how I husband, how I father at those high moments. We want to play that reel back and forth. But Jesus always directs our attention to who are you, how are you, when you're the low you. When you're the low you. And some of us are no good to anybody around us in those moments. Something happens, you check out. Your roles and responsibilities, they fall to the side. Your church attendance, they fall to the side. Caring and serving for others, non-existent. And some of you, I don't know which version of you will be walking in the door. Some of you, your spouse... They just, around 5 o'clock, they're praying, Lord, please let the high version of my wife come home today. They don't know who's going to be walking through the door. And I think what Jesus wants to do in your whole life, particularly as it relates to this, is he wants to close the gap between the high version of you and the low version of you so that you are serving and you're loving and you're being the person that Christ wants you to be regardless of what's going on around you. Regardless of the world around you. And this is so important. This is so important because if we all just zero in on how we are and who we are, when life's not happening right, then we can really get to work on being the person that God has called us to be. And my question to you is, how are you, who are you at those low moments? How willing are you to care for others? How open are your eyes to see the world around you in those moments? Your responsibilities, being met when the baby's crying and when the stress and when you're pressed. Who are you at those moments? Jesus would say, that's the real you. That's the part of you that I want you to submit. That's the part of you that I want you to let me change through the power of the Spirit from the inside out. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm seeking after. And many of us, if not all of us, will fail the test of the low us. The low me, the low you. Many of us fail. But Jesus says these words to us, not so we can feel condemned, but so that we can be moved to action. So that we can be challenged. Worship team, you can come up. I really want us to get this. I really want us to get this. People will know that we follow Jesus by the way we serve and the way we love. And if the way we serve and if the way we love is subject to the happenings of life, then the enemy knows exactly how to render us useless. And not only are we robbing the others around us, but Jesus says when we live this way, we'll be blessed. 
So we're not only robbing the people around us of receiving love and, and, and the power of God's spirit through us, we're robbing ourselves of the blessings and the life that God has called us to live. What are we going to do with this information? How are we going to be different after today? My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would just invade your heart as we worship. That he would point out, he would put the light of his word, put the light of his truth on those areas in our lives where we're so concerned about ourselves. Not the least bit concerned for others. My prayer is that your prayer would be, Lord, change me from the inside out. Do a work in my heart. Make me a servant. Call me to action. Call me to serve. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for how it cuts us. And sometimes it shows us an unflattering picture of ourselves. Nonetheless, Lord, you call us to be transformed, to constantly be moving towards you, ever closer to you, by being filled with your spirit and being changed from the inside out. Lord, you see our hearts. You see the high version of us, Lord. You see especially the low version of us. And you're desperately calling us, Lord, to a greater service. Would you show us the people in the world around us? Would you show us how to be servants at home? Would you show us, Lord, how to be servants at work? Would you show us, dear God, how to be your hands and feet in the world around us? Teach us how to serve. Teach us how to love. Lord, and as we worship you this morning, would you just... Do a work on our hearts. Would you show us ourselves, Lord? And would you change us from the inside out? Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.